Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson this morning comes from the gospel, gospel recorded in Luke chapter 18. You can find it on page nine in your worship guide, the screen behind me, or your Bibles or devices. Our sermon's gonna be based on Luke chapter 18, so I invite you to keep it open throughout our worship this, or our sermon this morning. <clears throat> Luke 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, there was what was happening on the outside, and then there was what was happening on the inside. There was what everyone saw going on on the outside, and then there was what only Jesus saw going on on the inside. This man, he was the type of guy that every single mother in all of Jerusalem and in Judea wanted their daughter to marry. I mean, after all, Scripture said he had it. He had it all. He was a ruler. He was very wealthy. And Scripture says, by his own admission, he was really good. I mean, he was a good person. He had it all. He had it all together at least on the outside. But on the inside, there was something that it wasn't sitting right. 
And so he came to Jesus with a question. A question because his heart was unsettled. And what he asked him was this. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just so you know, there is plenty of people in Scripture who try to trick Jesus. They try to catch him in some kind of lie or try to get him to say something that would turn the people against him. That's not this guy. This guy is the real deal, and his question is is real as well. This guy is sincere. He has a question about the deeper things in life eternal life. And Jesus recognizes this. You know, there's times where Jesus, he is not afraid to put those people who are out of line back in their place. There is times where Jesus deals very heavy-handedly with those people who are trying to trick him or tempt him. But that's not how he handles this man. This account is captured in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, what we know is when Jesus saw his, him, he looked at him and he loved him. He had compassion on him. He's not squaring off with this guy. He's caring for this guy. Need to know that as we jump back into Mark and, and see how Jesus responds to this man's question. What must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? That's what Jesus says. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. See what Jesus did here? Everyone saw what was going on on the outside. Only Jesus saw what was going on on the inside. And so he took aim. He went right at the matter of the heart. He does it by answering his question with a question of his own. He goes right at his concept of good and radically upends it. He says, good? What do you you mean by good? Do you mean just like kind of a nice guy? Do you mean kind of like good as in like good looking, looks like he has it all together? Or do you mean good as in holy and perfect like only God? Jesus cares. He cares about what's going on inside this man's heart. And so he not only goes straight at it, with this question, but also with the living, eternal word of God. He says, friend, you know the commandments. And Jesus lists some of the commandments out. He says, you know that you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, shouldn't steal, you shall not give false testimony. Listen to your mom and dad. And with that question, with that pointing to God's holy will, the Ten Commandments, he begins to uncover what's going on inside this man. And we see that. We see that because how the man responds. He says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Think about that. This man who obviously knew God's word, knew the 10 commandments enough to say that he had kept all of them, 
This man who knew the Ten Commandments and knew what God's word says about the Ten Commandments, that if you keep all of the commandments, guess what happens? Well, you get God's favor. You get eternal life. This man, who was the Renaissance man, who was the all-American guy, who, who had it all, confessed sincerely that he had kept the commandments. And he knew if he kept the commandments that, well, that would win you eternal life. Riddle me this. Why then did he still come and say, well, what should I do? What should I do? What can I do to get eternal life? It's because something, while it all looked good on the outside, was going on on the inside of this young ruler. What was that? What was going on on the inside of him is something we know that comes with a very technical, very deep theological term. You ready for it? It's our first fill in the blank this morning. Here it is. It's the do delusion. That's what was going on inside of him. Pretty hard to remember, right? Well, it actually does have a more difficult to remember Latin term for this theological, spiritual issue that was going inside him. It's called the opinio legis, or the opinion of the law, but that's harder to remember it. So this morning, we're going to remember it this way. It's the due delusion, and it's from his own words, this. There is something that I must do. There's something that I can do in order to inherit eternal life. The due delusion says this, that one can and actually must do good or has the potential to do enough good in order to earn their eternal life, in order to earn their eternal well-being with God, their eternal favor with God. The due delusion says that there is something in me that I should depend on in order to determine my well-being both here on this earth and forever in heaven, and I should do it by the strength of my own hands that I have in me. The spiritual, religious, moral power to accomplish something that is deserving of life, something that is deserving of eternal life and the eternal favor of my God. That's the due delusion. But here's why it's a delusion. Here's why it doesn't actually make sense. And we need to point this out is because, well, what you have here is the blind leaving the blind. You have the dependent relying on the undependable. It's about you relying on yourself, being dependent on yourself. Think about this. This is a universal conviction that lives in all human beings. And why? Two reasons. The first, it's at once thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling to think and to know that we are masters of our own fate, that we can take matters into our own hands and determine our standing before God, that we can accomplish something to earn his favor. In fact, well, we probably already have done something in our past to earn his favor. But follow that idea, this due delusion till its logical end. It's not only thrilling, it's also terrifying. 
It's terrifying because that means that at some point you have to know. You have to know by some standard if you've done it, if you did do enough. And so what we do is we create things. We create laws for ourselves, or maybe we pick out a few laws that we're pretty good at keeping, or we create certain achievements or attainments, like having a family, having a career, achieving this amount or this thing in our life. And we say, once I do that, then I'll check in and I'll know that I've done it. We create these standards. And yet what happens when we're not really sure if we've met that? Or even worse, what happens when we know in our hearts very honestly that we've failed to keep that or at least keep it as good as it looks on the outside, that there's something not right in here? Well, the thing that we created, that standard, that achievement, that rule or law, well, it ends up working exactly opposite how we hoped it would. Instead of creating more peace, more fulfillment, more certainty, more confidence, more favor in God's eyes, it ends up creating in us more anxiety, more fear, more uncertainty about where we stand before people, with the man in the mirror, and with our God. It's the do delusion, and perhaps a really good illustration of this is Sisyphus. You, you know how this Greek myth goes, right? Sisyphus is condemned to everlasting punishment of pushing a rock up a hill. He's punished that way because of certain things that he's done in this life, that that's now how he lives. We're familiar with this idea of constantly pushing the boulder up the hill, and when you get to the top of the hill or the mountain, it rolls down again, and you just do it. But here's where the delusion comes in and why it's very illustrative of maybe a sentiment or a feeling that hits all too close to home. What we forget about this myth is that Sisyphus is in hell. This is his eternal condemnation and punishment. And yet what often happens, and the New York Times cartoonist illustrated so well, is that, well, we think that this kind of, this kind of cycle is really fulfilling or it's, it's really enjoyable. It's really where we derive meaning. It makes us happy. That's really what the do delusion creates in us, this, this facade that it's all happy on the outside, that we have it all together. And on the inside, have I done enough? What, what, what must I do? Can, can I do something? And that is what's going on with this rich young ruler. It's why he can show up with it all together and say genuinely, sincerely to Jesus Christ, I have kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. And at the same time, inside, wonder, what, what else do I have to do? We're wrapping up this worship series called Lord Increase Our Faith. Over the last five weeks, what we've done is, is really taken time each week to say what we are saying with this prayer, this plea, Lord Increase Our Faith, and what we're not. 
What we are not saying is, Lord, increase my trust, my confidence in in Jesus Christ. Because by God's grace, you have that. We know this. Faith is a gift from God. That faith is a gift from God, and it comes to you through hearing the message about God. And your faith, that is a gift that comes from the message of Christ, is also authored and perfected by Christ. What we're not saying with this is someone sitting in your row has more Jesus and a stronger Jesus in their heart than you do, or that I need to somehow increase Jesus greater or less than, no, no, no. The author and the perfecter, the foundation of our faith, Jesus is the same in all of us. There's not really strong or weak faith in a general sense, but here's what there is. Here's what we are saying when we say, Lord, increase our faith. There is certain promises in God's word that we know are harder for us to trust. They're harder for us to take our hands of faith and and grab onto. And we're asking, Lord, increase our faith, our knowledge, our trust in specific promises that you give. The promise that we're looking at today, this is our next fill in the blank, is the done promise. It also goes by a very, very serious and technical term. It's called the gospel. It's the promise that Jesus Christ did it all for you. He accomplished your salvation that you could not. And it is this compared to the due delusion that there is someone, namely Jesus, that you can, in fact, you must depend on to inherit eternal life. This is the promise that we're asking God to increase in our hearts, to depend on him and him fully and him alone for our salvation and not ourselves. It's the due promise. And here's why we're talking about this. It's because, by God's grace, we are here with faith in Christ gathered around God and his word and his sacraments. And the truth is, it looks all good. What we do here, what you do in your life, And yet here's what we know. Well, I can't see into your heart. What we do know is what scripture says about our hearts. That naturally, this will always be a temptation. It will always be a temptation for us to think that maybe 99% is accomplished by Christ, but what must I do? For that 1%. Or maybe, hey, I know 100% is from Christ, but it's probably because of something that I did that made him love me so much. This due delusion is insidious in the fact that it is rooted in us in every aspect of our hearts. So where is it? Where is it in your life? One of the greatest illustrations of this is what many, many theologians have said, and that the human heart is an idol factory, that the human heart by nature is sinful. And by nature, what a sinful heart does is produce idols. And it takes really, really good things, and it actually turns them into the ultimate thing. It could be the really, really good thing, just like this man, of moral duty. It's a good thing to do good things. But do you make doing good the ultimate thing? Do you make your job, which is a gift from God and a really, really good thing, the most important thing? Or family, people, 
people, the greatest gift that God can give us outside of his grace and forgiveness, does that become the number one thing? What our hearts do is produce idols, things in our life that we turn into a standard, uh, achievement, uh, an attainment, in order to say, no, this is, this is something that I, that I do, that I fulfill in order for God to accept me and love me. The man, he went away sad. And he went away sad, you heard it before, because after he said he, he kept all the commandments, admitted before God, I, I've, I've kept these, I've done it, what, what else? Jesus said this, sell everything. Sell everything you have and, and then just follow me. You see what Jesus did? With this, well, he pointed him to the number one command, the first commandment. Have you ever heard of this? The two tables of the law or the two tables of the Ten Commandments? What it has here is listed out the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus did, did you catch this in the first part? Jesus is so good at his job. He's a great teacher. What he did is he pointed out to him the really the the second table of the law and only the second table of the law. Look back at the text. He talks about commandments four through 10. And he says, have you done these? And the guy says, yes, of course I did. But in doing that, what he's really done is focus the man exclusively on the second table of the law. The table of the law that, well, governs your horizontal relationships, our relationship to one another and to our neighbor. And in this, when you only focus on this, like this man did, what happens is he thinks he's accomplished it. He thinks that, of course, I'm a good neighbor because I've done one through 10. But then Jesus asks him something that isn't just about money. He asks him something, again, that is rooted at the very base of his heart. Do you have anything in your life that you are putting above me. What he did was he, he pointed him back to the very first commandment that you should have no other gods. Your heart should only grab onto me. All of the idols that it produces, whether it's job, career, success, money, looks, things, friends, family, entertainment, do you put those above me or do you have no gods before me? And in doing this, what he did was remind him of the first table of the law, which deals exclusively with your vertical relationship, your relationship with your Savior. And there is such a connection to these. What, what Jesus wanted him to see is how when you have this relationship right and restored and in line, it, it moves you. It moves you to go and then do and keep these commandments for the glory of God. And yet what happened Instead of this man coming, thinking he accomplished them all, when he showed him that he had, in fact, not kept it, well, he did for this man what, what the law needs to do for all of us, to realize that the truth is we don't keep these perfectly. And the reason we don't even keep these second table commandments perfectly is because we can't even keep the first commandment perfectly or any of the first table commandments perfectly. 
And yet this isn't where Jesus wanted him to stay. With a smile, with a heart full of love, he looked at him because what he wanted him to do is see that, well, if you give up everything and just put me first in your life, like there's this beautiful joy that you have to see that you can go out and do everything in every other area of your life. But how did the man respond? He went away sad. You need to understand what happens with the law to see this. Jesus said, sell everything and come after me. But he went away very sad, incredibly grieved, head down. He went away like this and stopped there because that's when you focus on the second table, the only two outcomes that you can have. Either you can be super proud of yourself that I have kept all of these since I was a boy, or you realize that you, that you can't and you haven't. And so Jesus said to him, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a massive theological and spiritual point here. It's not just about money, and it's not some silly little analogy about a camel going through some gate called the eye of the needle. No, what he's making is a very simple analogy. It's not possible for large things to go through small things. In the same way, Jesus is saying, it's not possible when you have other gods before me, whether it's money, like it was for this guy, whether it was your morality, like it might be for others, or friends, or family, or success, or looks, or things. When you have things before me, Jesus said, it's, it's not possible to enter the kingdom of God. That's the point. And he went away sad, staggering sad. And in response, the people who are left, what did they ask? Who then can be saved? If not that guy, really there's that guy in all of us, well, who can be saved? And believe it or not, this question, it's, it comes from a good place, a sincere place that recognizes that you can't depend on yourself. And if, if that's what saves us, well, then what can we do? And this is where Christ steps in and says, listen, what is impossible with man, that is possible with God. Here, the Lord proudly and boldly proclaims the gospel and says, look, it's not possible what I just said. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, but here is what's possible all things with God. What's not possible with man, that is possible with God. It is not possible for you to do anything to inherit eternal life. But here's another way of saying what Jesus just said. He said, look, there is someone that you can and in fact must depend on to inherit eternal life. And it's me. It's the one who has come to fulfill the law perfectly forever for you. It's interesting that then Peter, the disciples who are there, they, they follow up with a question and said, well, not a question, but what about us? Well, we have left everything to follow you. And I don't know. What do you think Peter's trying to get at with that question? Is he trying to get some praise, a pat on the back? You've seen that before in Jesus' disciples, Right? But here, Jesus doesn't deal even heavy-handedly with his disciples. 
Instead, he deals with them in terms of promises. And he says, listen, I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come in eternal life. Here Jesus says, you are going to be blessed for following me, for depending on me for salvation, not only in eternal life, but I'm going to bless you in this age to come. And he said that. Why? Well, because according to our economy, what do we think? That we think we need to defend, depend on ourselves. We need to pull ourselves up by the bootstrings to have something to obtain anything. But in God's economy, he says it's actually quite the opposite. Don't depend on yourself, but depend on me. And, and what you're going to see is that I'm not just going to give you eternal life. I'm going to care for you in this life to come. And no, this isn't some glory theology or prosperity gospel. It's the middle. It's neither thinking that, oh, following Jesus means we just have nothing ever, or thinking that if we follow him, then we get good things and glory. No, it's recognizing this. It's a theology of the cross, that when we depend on the cross of Jesus Christ for everything, yeah, we, we realize that that he's the number one thing and everything else takes a back seat. But we also realize the tremendous blessings that we have through him, from him. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Think about that gospel promise and and think about what the man said. He said, all these commandments I have kept since I was a boy. Agree or disagree question. Could you say that? All these I have, I have kept since I was young? On the outside, no. No, we know we haven't. And in the inside, we know that too. But you can agree with that because what's impossible with man is impossible with God. Before God's, here's the really wonderful thing, that God does look at you and he sees you as having kept them all, not because of what you have done, but because of what's been done and promised for you in Christ Jesus, that Christ kept the law fully and perfectly for you. And he asks you to depend on him for that today. I mentioned in our introduction that we're celebrating the Lutheran Reformation this weekend. What does that mean? Well, historically, here's what happened. That the Christian church during the 1500s had gotten to a point where, well, they really got addicted or obsessed with the due delusion, that there was something that you could do in order to inherit eternal life. And, and in Martin Luther's day, it actually got to the point where they said you could even just buy things to inherit eternal life. You maybe heard of indulgences. It's pieces of paper that were quite pricey that people were asked to buy, and they're asked to buy them in order to inherit eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, just buy a piece of paper. And what Martin Luther did, and maybe the easiest way to explain what the Reformation was, is this picture. Just point it back at God's word. Martin Luther looked at God's word and, and what it said about how one achieves eternal life. He saw it as a gift. It's a gift that comes from faith or depending on Christ alone. Faith alone, that is a gift that God gives out of grace alone. 
That's what Martin Luther did. He just pointed people back to that. And, and that is the Lutheran heritage that we celebrate today. Now, there is a due delusion that, did you know that well, people maybe often accuse or stereotype Lutherans for having? It's, well, the do-nothing delusion that people say, well, if it's all done for you, if it's this done promise that Christ did it all, well, then you'll just do nothing ever. And that's not true, nor is that how it works with God's love and God's promises and, and what we do in our life. And I've seen that really illustrated well in four places. This picture right here is a picture of a statue of Martin Luther on a campus that is a prep school in our church body where I got to go to high school. And it's a really powerful reminder that while you're there, you're studying what God's word has to say about everything but this. And then when you go on to our church body's Bible college called Martin Luther College, there's another statue there pointing to God's word to remind you what you're doing there at the school, but also what we discover in God's word. But then I like the symbolism at the seminary or the last of our church body schools that you go to as you prepare for a pastor. There's another statue of Martin Luther, but he's no longer just pointing into the book, God's word. He's pointing out. He's pointing out because after we have seen and received all of God's gifts he gives through his word. Well, what this picture, what these statues illustrate is, is really what we've been talking about this whole time. When we see what God gives us in his word, that he is our only God and, and his name alone belongs all glory for what he's done. And, and when we observe the Sabbath and we receive everything that he gives us in his word, it really does lead out to us rejoicing in that and serving our neighbors our friends and family with that. And going back again to him, knowing we don't do that perfectly, but we depend on him for doing it for us and motivating us the same. Christian friends, may the Lord increase our faith as we look and learn to depend on him in all our life. Amen.